0: Roll. Roll it. Roll. Roll take. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations it's totally free for users and when you're hired they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them but if you use the adventures in angular link you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead finally if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is you can refer them to hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job go sign up at Hire.com slash adventures in angular Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directly. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Witchmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on salt state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 53 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames. Hey everybody. John Papa.
1: Hey everyone. Ward Bell. Hello, hello.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just a quick shout out while uh, I got the mic. I released Rails Clips, which is a video series on Ruby on Rails. I know this is an Angular show, but, you know, some Angular folks do Rails. So if you're looking for videos about Rails, go check it out at railsclips.com. I forgot Katya. Katya.
2: Hi.
0: I just, I can't see her there with Joe, so. (laughs) We also have a special guest this week, and that's Ben Drucker. Hey, guys. Do you want to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I am an engineer at Ease at the moment, and we are working with a full JavaScript stack, Node, Angular, and some other. New and exciting stuff. I just moved to San Francisco to join the company and have been doing JavaScript development front-end and back-end for the better part of, I would say, two years at this point. Got into it, sort of realized it was a wagon worth hitching to, and haven't looked back.
0: Very cool. We have on the docket Angular apps at scale, and it seems like a lot of people kind of tout the Single page app is scaling because you move all of that logic and computing to the front end, and so it's executing in somebody's browser. So you don't have to do that work on the back end. So it's scalable. So if Angular is inherently scalable, then what do you mean by Angular apps that
3: scale? Sure. So there's a very different meaning for sure on the front end. If you if you do your backends appropriately, the scaling advantage there is that you have very little state in your applications. You can spin up lots of new boxes and you can just scale by throwing computing resources at it. On the front end, you're dealing with one computer, uh, one user, but you have lots of state. And so scaling to me on the front end means how do you manage this dramatically more complex application? Because on the back end, Everything is a black box to the user, so you can break up your back end into 100 different services, or you can leave it as one, and at the end of the day, the user really doesn't know the difference. On the front end, like everything's running in one place, and so it's really a matter of how you organize the application itself in code as opposed to how you split it out into separate services that have some protocol for talking to each other. Um, And what I found is that really is the name of the game when it comes to building applications that don't make you tear your hair out. It's not about servers crashing due to load. It's about managing complexity because your application is going to be one thing on day one and by day 365, if not quite a bit sooner, it's going to be something insanely different. And so how do we cope with that transition?
0: So are there particular tools that you recommend for this?
3: Yeah, I think the starting point is a module loader of some kind. I think using one is a whole lot better than using none. And so there's Browserify out there, which I really like, uh, and we use it at Ease, and I've used it personally for quite a while. There is uh, AMD and RequireJS, which has been around for a while, and there's some... Um, new things that are trying to sort of provide forward compatibility with uh, what ES6 wants to do on modules. At the end of the day, it's some sort of system that allows you to break the application into smaller parts, and that system is smart, and it knows how to assemble your application at the end of the day. You don't have to tell it sort of old school, here's where all my script files are, make them into one big thing. It needs to be smart enough to go to each package in the tree, find all the dependencies and keep moving along so that your application can treat these uh, different bits of it as black boxes that expose a certain API and you get to consume them and it's easy to consume them. It's, It's a simple statement, whether it's a require or an import or something like that, um, you have a concise and one-line way to bring in third-party code.
2: We'll certainly uh, get at that and that distinction also between how you modularize uh, versus uh, dynamic or async loading of scripts. But, but can we back up a little bit to what you're working on that has led you to be thinking about scalability with this technology?
3: Sure. So I originally got into this whole world of breaking applications into smaller pieces at the last company that I worked on called uh, Valet, where I was producing donation tools for nonprofits and along the way started to break out a lot of the core business logic into open source packages. So one of them that's proved pretty Uh, Popular is Angular credit cards, and that was a huge piece of the business is not only processing credit cards, but trying to surface typos and various other error states from users as soon as possible. Because if you tell them right away, they can fix it, whereas if you report some sort of generic server error, it's slow and hard to understand. And so that was a case where I just realized that nothing was especially technically difficult. So validating credit cards is some simple string computation and a lot of regular expressions. And so the real challenge with that particular business was not doing something computationally intensive or something that really required intense thought. It was more about how do I break these pieces apart so that I can get a handle on what I'm building and so I can write tests across all these things that are going on. Because I felt like if I left it in the the core of the application, it was just going to become completely unmaintainable. Uh, There was going to be so much logic that was completely unrelated to the business itself, stuck in the application, and I was working on it solo. And so I was Working very hard to try to sort of manage my attention and my time around the code base, knowing that if I really screwed something up, I really didn't have extra dev time to be spending. It was about moving fast and sort of having the ability to independently version pieces and just juggle a lot of of balls at once.
2: So this is the case for separation of concerns kind of thing, right? You know, building modules that are focused on a single problem and not mixing that code up with uh, other code that's working on other problems. That's basically what drove you here,
3: right? Correct. How do you just acknowledge that certain pieces of the process are going to move faster than others and requirements are going to change? Sort of how can you anticipate failure from day one? expect to be wrong about a lot of decisions and have a comfortable way to recover from those incorrect judgments as opposed to getting stuck doing rewrites or uncomfortable refactors.
2: Okay, so yeah, I think we all experience that in our code. When we think about scalability, a lot well, a lot of us have a different ideas about what that means. So so what does that mean for you in the context of of that uh, application you were describing?
3: Sure. Uh, I think it hinges on that idea of expecting for the ground to shift underneath you and for things to change. Uh, Very rarely do applications actually encounter legitimate performance challenges on the front end. Most of the time, you're not dealing with really complicated data processing or things where you're thinking about how to make maximally efficient use of the computing resources that you have the problem that's going to trip up sort of your standard business or consumer application where you have some forms and you have dynamic data flowing in is the the glue that sits between the pieces because you're you're building this tower over time where you're going to tack on all kinds of additions and if you do that poorly you're you're building something that's vulnerable to surprises. So you may decide to add a particular feature and find that something that seemed like it should take a day turns out to take a week worth of untangling mixed concerns. Um, So to me, front-end scalability means how do you work with that sort of constant change and how do you think about growing an application that will probably start pretty simple and by the mid to end of its life cycle be extremely complicated.
2: Okay. Well, that's clarifying in terms of what you mean. And it helps us separate from a, a, a another meaning that is often in people's heads, which has to do with the, you know, how many users, simultaneous users do you have and what kind of pressure there is put on backend resources and stuff like that, which is certainly a very real problem for an awful lot of Companies and that tends to be what they mean by scalability. But your your focus is on the on scaling up a complex application from a development perspective. Is that is that a fair summary?
3: Yes, and I think even on the server, when you're thinking about sort of concurrent users, the path to achieving some sort of scalability is to break the application into multiple pieces so that the piece that actually has the most computational pressure on it. You can put the appropriate resources behind it, so, do message ben, queuing, whatever you need to do.
1: Yeah, Ben, I'm kind of following yes. up on Ward's question there at this point. I, I think I'm following where you're going, but if you could kind of, I think they can go in a couple of ways, the way you're describing scaling. Are you saying scaling not in as far as users, but are you talking more about the goal being maintainability, creating more enhancements later, or in deployment, DevOps, kind of how would you one word summarize kind of the goal of like the kind of scalability you're talking about?
3: So I think maintainability is a fair analog, um, but maintainability itself could be split into two pieces. There's your ability to add the sorts of features and changes that a user would recognize, things that have far reaching or even small changes to the end user experience of an application. And then there's also the, uh, somewhat obscured from users issue of bugs. Um, And I think that's something to think about as well, as you talk about scaling an application is the temptation is always to just inline this simple function that you think you understand today. The question is like, will you need that function to do something else down the road and how many Scenarios are you able to test? How well is your code able to adapt? And for a feature, that means like adapting the the pixels on screen for a user. But for internal APIs, you're talking about sort of changes in the way that you're gluing the pieces together. And how much when you add something do you need to know about how all of those internals work? And in order to know that information, can you look at tests or documentation or do you have to read and understand every single line of the source code in order to have any sense of what will happen when you take a particular action?
2: And are you designing for, for uh, teams or do you, you know, how big is your development team typically?
3: Team size definitely matters, but the the more important thing is is the general trend regardless of team size, which is when you have this product, uh, or building a company, and it turns out you should actually be building four different applications, each of which is focused on a particular user group, whether if it's a marketplace, you have one thing for your sellers and one thing for your buyers, something to that effect is quite common at this point. And that's sort of the the highest level of modularity rather than building one app, you're going to build a couple of apps. And then the question becomes... How do you share between those applications because there are inevitable overlaps? How do you manage them? So let me
2: back up a little bit from that, or maybe I'm switching gears on you. When you think about the application, perhaps the application that you're now building at your current company, which is Ease, right? Yes. It would help us a little bit, I think, to understand kind of the broad architecture, like because you you really think of this application in an end-to-end right perspective, not just on what's being developed on the client. So can you give us the big picture behind the architecture of Ease, and how then we can fit this back in?
3: Sure. I mean, so I, I think I should start by giving people the thirty-second run-through of what Ease is uh, and what we do as a company. Ease is a medical marijuana technology company. So we are sort of the the Uber for weed, uh, as has been quoted, and that means okay.
2: uh, uh, I want to be. Do I need to be a driver? How do I sign up to be a driver?
3: You'd have to be in uh, in California to to be a driver. But the mechanics are very similar. So a huge chunk of Ease's value is fast and reliable delivery time. Uh, drivers are on the road running a mobile application. Uh, they're having orders come into them in real time. As a medical marijuana patient, you're placing an order through a mobile web application. Because of the App Store and Play Store rules, you actually have to have this uh, ...as a mobile web application, so from mobile and desktop, pretty even split between them. So you're placing an order there. Uh, That order is dispatched from this front-end application to an API. Uh, That API sends out the order to native mobile applications uh, that drivers are running... And then there's a lot of administrative effort to understand how orders are flowing, to do quality control, and just manage the the user experience to the tightest extent possible.
2: Well, it sounds like you could have a great cross-sell with pizza, Um, but I digress. (laughs) (laughs) So behind all of this, what do you... Like, I know, for example, that Uber is running Node front to back. Are you guys running Node in the... I mean, in the back, and then... Uh, the stuff in the front. So, 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 what, what have you got behind the scenes there, propelling
3: your application? Sure. So, the engineering team is full JavaScript, um, and that's changing from some original Microsoft stack pieces. So, Ease was actually uh, built originally by contractors, and so certain services were built by the current engineering team in-house from day one, and certain services were initially created by contractors and were sort of playing dual roles in supporting them. So I would guess by maybe the end of this year, it will be 100% JavaScript. Uh, Right now, there are still a couple of bits uh, that to us as an engineering team are essentially... Black boxes that we don't deal with directly, and we're just making API calls and sort of not worrying about what's going on behind the scenes. So, is
2: my client, uh, my Angular client, is it talking to a um, a Node API or uh, or a Node a single Node server? Is it talking to multiple Node servers? What you know? How, how does it flow? Like I'm, I'm I'm you know I'm sitting here with the you know my client app, and I'm making I'm making a call to the server. Am, am I making it to a single server or multiple servers? First of all.
3: Sure. So right now it's a single server, uh, but Ease actually has two products. And so there are entirely independent APIs for those issues. So there is uh, easeup.com, which has been around since day one, uh, and that's your your ordering system. Uh, and then very recently released is uh, ease.md which is a system where you can actually go online, have a consultation with a doctor directly in the browser, and get a medical recommendation that you can turn around and use immediately on easeup.com if approved. And so, for example, right there, uh, EaseMD has two backend services, one for the REST API and one for the WebSocket communications that needs to happen there. And those are entirely independent from the primary API, which is still one single large application.
2: Are you finding uh, as you run this that you're getting, I mean, where where are the bottlenecks showing up as you guys are, I, I assume you guys have been in production, you're taking orders and so forth?
3: Yes. So Ease has been around for quite a while at this point. I mean, actually a young company, but quite a while for this space. We've sort of quickly become the the biggest player here and yeah, taking thousands of orders. So the the big bug, like at this point that we see as a team is around this issue of growing the business and changing from a single simple application that could sort of be duct taped together by humans doing customer support and just growing fast enough that customer support is no longer able to solve a lot of problems. So initially uh, launching in San Francisco and now at this point in San Francisco, San Diego, and Los Angeles, in select areas of San Diego and Los Angeles, growing to basically the whole metro area in both those cities this year. The volume of orders is going to go through the roof. And so there's a lot of emphasis on solving all of the technical and design debt as soon as possible because we can't solve small order issues anymore by just having an email conversation with somebody. We we need to be at the level of Uber where it's a perfect experience 99.99% of the time and that business can scale, whereas one that requires regular support intervention can't.
1: I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Sure. Because that's what I like to do. <laughs> so just kind of taking up a, a little bit, with we talked about scaling a little, and uh, we talked about kind of what your company's doing with it. And I assume you're applying some of those principles to what you're doing with At Ease and your previous ventures. Could you, if you had to give our listeners a couple tips, let's just say, you know, your top two or three tips on when you're trying to scale an app in the way that we've defined it here, what are those things that they should be doing that they're not today?
3: Sure. I think the overarching principle is to focus intensely on the glue between the parts uh, and less so on any individual part. If you connect everything properly, oftentimes you can take an occasional shortcut and sort of leave a comment in there mentioning that you need to come back. When we say API as of a layperson. Maybe people know at this point that it's like some sort of HTTP service that's doing something for your application. Uh, When it comes to front end, obviously, we're mostly constructing APIs and consuming a few APIs in the forms of frameworks. Uh, And so you want to think really carefully about the API of your application uh, in the same way that somebody might think about an API if they're, let's say, Stripe or Twilio, where You can't change that API without serious costs being involved. You have to have some sense of of versioning and you have to have documentation. And you should really think about front end applications or back end for that matter in the same way. So you should think about how you can sort of provide maximum future proofing from day one and acknowledge that the internals will change, but the externals shouldn't. Yeah, sorry, Ben. Uh, so, kind of
1: just to see if I heard you right there, the tips that come out of there that I think I gathered from you, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is basically to make sure you've got the documentation for your API, make sure your API solves the right, answers the right questions for your UI, you're trying to answer, and also make sure you've got a versioning strategy in place so you can manage, you know, your growth over time and uh, handle backwards compatibility uh, to whatever degree you want to do that. Is that kind of what you were saying?
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly right.
1: Okay, uh, and I think I can agree with that as being a concern as well. I'm curious, what kind of load are you guys seeing? Or either if you can't talk about your current company, or, but you know, what when you say, "Hey, I need to worry about scale of size," what kind of load or number of requests per minutes, or you know, how how do you monitor this stuff? Can you talk a little about you know how do you manage that kind of a thing once you get to large scale? Not designing it, but
3: how do you manage it? Sure. You, I think, have a lot of affordances in in 2015 as computing power gets cheaper. So I think in a lot of cases, when you're talking about backend services, you can just throw more CPUs and memory at a lot of problems, um, unless it's a sort of Facebook-style, really difficult, tons of data sort of problem. So I think managing scale it's actually more important not to focus on sort of being able to contain problems. So when a particular piece has a performance issue, is that piece well isolated? And if we're talking about backend, if it is well isolated, you can put message queues in front of it and you can spin up more and faster boxes to help cope with that load. Uh, and you can do that very inexpensively. Okay, but when, how, would you know,
1: how do you know when to do that? I, I guess my point is, are you using any kind of tooling or anything to monitor uh, load? I mean, So once you, you're going to make a decision at some point to go ahead and do, let's say, more CPUs or more VMs or more message queues. But what's telling you to do that? What's that impetus? How are you being notified of that? Is there some tool you're using?
3: I think it certainly helps to have automated tooling for sort of the alarm bells issues where something is going really, really wrong. For other issues, I found it's most helpful to just have some sort of regularly scheduled kind of performance auditing that you're doing where you take a look at your response times. Maybe you set a uh, a 95% threshold that you think is acceptable and inevitably over time you're going to start doing more things and you're going to put more pressure on that threshold that you've set. And when you start to peak above that threshold that you've set as an acceptable latency, response time, whatever your metric is, at that point you just do some targeted investigation for the single highest leverage optimization that you could make. And so in some cases that might just mean spending a half day on one particular thing. But I don't think it's entirely necessary to do that from day one. You should anticipate from day one that every single component might be the culprit, but you don't necessarily need to go make everything absolutely perfect until it turns out that that component is indeed the culprit and it's the lowest hanging fruit for better performance.
2: So Ben, I I want to ask you one more server-side question, and then I'm going to spin it back to the client side for a brief bit. My curiosity on the server-side is, what are you using for uh, data storage? Is it SQL or NoSQL? and what, if anything, you can say about that. And then I'd, I'd like to come back to the client, but I, I have this need to know. What are you using?
3: Sure. So at Ease, we are using RethinkDB pretty heavily for the, the advantage of having NoSQL, and it's also very real-time friendly. In the past, uh, I've worked very heavily with Firebase, and I do a lot of Postgres. And so we're also doing... SQL at ease for a lot of things as well. It's really a question of what the needs are. So for a real-time application, the sort of front-end database in a lot of cases would be rethink, but ultimately you would be shipping data out to a SQL database for analysis. It really depends on the need and sort of what data are we looking at on a regular basis versus what things that ne- don't necessarily need to be real-time.
2: So the real-time stuff, anything, like like, would orders be in both or, or customers be in both or would they be in one or the other? I mean, how do you make that decision about which kinds of data belong in which kind of data
3: repository? Things like uh, orders and customers typically are like very relational and it makes much more sense to, to store those things in SQL, whereas, for example, with the... Ease MD product where doctors and patients are connecting in real time and you have chat going on and all these interactions are happening live, there's not a lot of need to query that data in flight. Uh, it's important that two connected clients get this information and then at the end of the session, that information gets shipped off for analysis. But it's not necessarily critical that you be able to make SQL queries on those active sessions so that sort of informs that decision there.
2: Gotcha. So let's let's swing over to the client where your app is primarily Angular and is Angular do it all for you or do you feel that we should be aware of something else
3: going on there? So I think people should investigate the module tools out there so what Angular is giving you is dependency injection and i think that in a lot of ways is not without its uses but a lot closer to the sort of web development that we think of as completely antiquated and never something that we would do in 2015 so it's pretty well agreed upon that it would be a bad idea to publish every single service in your application on the window Um, Nobody is really doing that in 2015. I'm I'm sorry. I'm not
2: not quite following you there because I understand dependency injection as being compatible with your earlier idea about modularizing things and then just injecting the module that does like credit card or whatever, wherever you need it. So I'm, I'm not sure. What am I missing here? Is this a critique of dependency injection or are you trying to say something else?
3: Yes. I mean, it is a critique of dependency injection. So you could still follow the idea of having single responsibility modules and functions, but you would just publish everything on the window. You'd say window.request, and you'd put your logic in there for calling the server or whatever you need. And it's pretty well understood that that's problematic. But and nobody in Angular would, do that, right? no, would, in would ever do that, right? Nobody who would write Angular would ever do that. Yes, dependency injection makes most of the same mistakes as that like, very simplistic approach, but it's less obvious. So, dependency injection has a single global namespace for all of Angular, and services have to be namespaced otherwise they break. And you you only have one global registry. So, let's say we have uh, we have our application at the top. And then one of our downstream dependencies, something that we're registering as a dependency of our application, has some modules that it depends on. With the Angular dependency injection system, those dependencies of dependencies can clobber our own services without our knowledge. If we don't
2: name them, if we don't name them according to some kind of convention that keeps them from having a name collision, so is your, is the critique Correct. that that there's the risk of name collision unless we adhere to conventions that that prevent that from happening? Or are you saying that that's a, even in, even using naming conventions runs you into trouble?
3: Even well, using naming conventions, the convention? in the most extreme case. Right. Let, let's let say you go to the most extreme poll and everything in your Angular application is given a completely randomized name, so there's basically no probability of collisions. You still create issues where, as a top-level application, when you depend on a module, everything that that module has automatically gets exposed. So there's no way to have... Private dependencies is in the system everything's entirely global and so if I just want a little utility to do something inside my module angular dependency injection doesn't help me with that I just have to inline the the function directly there's no uh, sensible mechanism for making something private in a way that can't have namespace collisions, but also is very clear that it's not exposed for public consumption. Okay.
2: So yeah, that's certainly true. I don't know that I've experienced that uh, as a problem, but maybe I just have missed it. But anyway, so what are you doing that alleviates that problem?
3: Yeah. So I use Browserify exclusively for front-end applications. And so that means that you're able to compile uh, Node modules so that they run in the browser and you're able to use the require function from Node in order to import a module into a particular file. That module is is local to that file. There is a defined syntax for what you export. And so it's easy to get very small things, uh, whether it's I want to camel case a string and I just want something that does that one single little function or sharing code between your node servers and your front end applications. I think actually more often than not, it's the former case of just bringing in lots of little utility functions. But for a lot of things, especially related to, to data and sharing uh, validation and schemas and things like that, it can be enormously helpful for sharing uh, code between the server and the client as well.
2: So the client, just for peeks at home, the client is actually running Node on the client? Is that right, or, or is there something else? Not all of us know what Browserify is doing for us in this regard.
3: Sure. So, so you have a compile step uh, where you are giving Browserify an entry point, and it is taking that entry point, looking for all of the require statements inside that entry point, a specific file or a glob, and then traversing those pieces in order to ultimately build one big chunk of JavaScript. But there is no node runtime that's happening in the browser. It's basically wrapping things in closures and creating an internal registry of these pieces so that there is a require function that's defined inside the code that it outputs. And when you run the code, require internally works the way that it would work in Node, just that the dependencies that it'll need to go get have actually been inlined so that it's not dynamic, it's entirely synchronous.
2: And how do you tie that back into, you know, as an Angular programmer, what am I experiencing as being different there? Or do I not at all? I mean, I still have controllers, right? But yes, no, or how do I uh, integrate my Angular code style with using um, these require statements?
3: Sure. So high-level Angular concerns like having controllers and services would not change. The, The most notable change is that for modules that properly export in a node-compatible format, which Angular, all of the various split-off Angular packages, like the router do, UI router does this, among some other uh, popular third-party plugins. What you would be doing, actually, is from those packages, you would export the module name, and then in your... Uh, sort of app initialization step when you're saying angular.module, you're giving an application a name and you're creating an array of dependencies, you're actually able to insert those require statements directly inside the dependency array. The result being that your third-party dependencies will be loaded with Angular, and then you will return the actual name that needs to be in that array so that the dependency injection system can be happy. You actually get to do that in one single line, and then the build process will basically automatically figure out how to assemble your bundle as opposed to you having to tell some sort of build tool are all of my third-party dependencies in order of how they need to be registered, which gets quite brittle.
2: Thanks. I guess I, I had one more question. I we, we you know we went to the uh, went to the GitHub site and you got 304 GitHub repos. <laughs> That's a lifetime's worth of work for some of us. How did you get to that? And uh, what what words of advice do you have for us? I mean, why for managing? Just how do you even get there?
3: I I think it's about building the shipping muscle, for one, and just getting very comfortable releasing packages. I think not unlike any other habit. On day one, it's really hard. Uh, A year or not even a year, maybe a month in, it could be considerably easier. Um, So for me, that means having all kinds of helper scripts, shell scripts, some JavaScript to help release this stuff because I'm following a very consistent set of standards across all of these Packages And so that's just something that you have to find over time. Like, it's entirely possible that with the exact same knowledge of what we want to build, I could have something published to NPM in 5 to 10 minutes that might take someone who's doing their first or second open source package. It might take them 30 or 40 minutes, if not more, uh, just because I'm very used to doing things this way. So that definitely helps. I think the other one is just not treating open source as sort of this name brand activity where everything either has to be Angular or React or it has to get hundreds of stars. I think it can be extremely helpful to think about open source JavaScript these days as sort of the evolution of the snippets that people used to have in their text editors where we're trying to sort of create all of these Lego bricks that are individually well-tested and documented. And so a lot of the things that I'm publishing qualify sort of as snippets, where to a lot of people who think of open source as like Angular or React or projects that take a ton of time, that might seem a little bit unusual. But to me, it wouldn't be at all unusual to publish something that's two or three lines, maybe five or ten. If it's useful and if it helps sort of take a classic tricky problem and make it a little bit more understandable, then it's worth open sourcing.
2: Well, that's better than what I was going to do. I was just going to go out and fork the most popular (laughs) app.
3: Just build up my (laughs) repertoire
2: that way. Well, thanks, Ben. That That was certainly an interesting survey of the scene. Chuck, where are we?
0: Uh, I think we're ready to get to picks. Let's have Joe start us with picks.
3: I'm going to pick a board game that I've had for quite a while. I actually kickstarted it and a guy that I know who works for Pluralsight or, or used to, I think he still works for Pluralsight actually created and it's called Robots on the Line. And it's a really fun game for one reason because you can play it lots of different ways. It just has all these little tiles that you connect together to build up robots. And there's kind of a lot of different ways to play it, but it's a really fun game to play with kids. It's very entertaining for adults, but it's also really fun for kids to build robots together. And they're not—they're just a little cardboard tile, so it's not like any kind of a real robot. But still, fun imagination, and the little parts are all kind of drawn in a sort of cartoony, fun style, and just just a very enjoyable board game to play with uh, kids. So. That's going to be my pick, is the board game robots on the line.
0: All right. Tatia, what are your picks?
3: My pick is going to be St. Petersburg, Russia, because I was there about a month ago, and it's a beautiful city, and I want to go back.
0: Very cool. Ward, what about you?
2: Well, clearly we're not doing any technology today. I am going to paste in a link to an essay in the New York Times about uh, Robert Frank, who is a, it's in the 90s, He's, he was a very influential avant-garde photographer uh, who's a major book was something called The Americans back in the, I guess it was in the early 60s. And he was a friend of the Beats, friend of the Rolling Stones, but a pretty strange character. I think when you read this essay, you'll want to know much more about him, and you'll be very interested in getting his seminal book, The Americans.
0: All right. I've got a quick pick, and that is Paracord. You can buy all kinds of colors and designs on, on Amazon. And, uh, the way I got into it was kind of funny. Um, I do the training for the Cub Scout leaders at Roundtable, which is just the training meeting every month for Cub Scout leaders. And one of the other people on staff is really into paracord. And so he was tying stuff. We did around Robin where people could pick the sessions they went to. And his session was actually tying a fob for your keychain on in paracord. And, uh, I couldn't go to it because I was doing my own session, but afterward he helped. Um, myself and a few other staff members tie that and Turks head woggle, which you can put on your, uh, your neckerchief as a neckerchief slide and stuff like that. It was a lot of fun. So I'm going to pick paracord and he also had this really cool uh, case for a Bic lighter. So you slide it in there and then you put the lit, the cap on, and then it has a button on the back. And when you push the button down, it acts as kind of a mini blowtorch. Um, it's, it's really cool. And I just thought it was cool. It melts paracord really nicely, as you can imagine. So, uh, I'm going to pick that too. I'll put a link to that in the show notes.
2: That's fun. That's fun. I've gotten into knots recently myself for some reason. So I have like my, my favorite knots that I try all the time. So I I guess that's related. Like Beckett's Hitch, I'm going to slip him in there. Beckett's Hitch, Slippery Half Hitch, and um, everybody got to know a bowline, right? If you don't know a bowline, you're going to lower yourself down a cliff, which we all are doing in code every day.
0: Every day, that's right. Yeah, so I'm going to be tying a few more bracelets and stuff. Eventually, I want to tie a belt, do an entire belt.
2: So you're into bondage. I get it.
0: That's right. (laughs) Ben, do you have some picks for us?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So one that immediately comes to mind is I, I just moved from New York to San Francisco this week. And a lifesaver uh, was SHIP, called S-H-Y-P. And it is a service that will basically send somebody to professionally package and ship your items for a $5 per pickup fee. They send it via usually uh, USPS or FedEx, uh, whichever ends up being cheaper. Essentially, it's a bike messenger shows up, gets your stuff, takes it off to the uh, the shipping depot where it gets packaged and sent out. And they are in, I want to say, San Francisco, New York, Miami, and L.A. right now. But this basically saved my life where... I just really did not have enough stuff to merit hiring moving them, and I think this is probably true of a lot of people in cities these days, and it would have taken probably two entire days of my life to go buy a bunch of boxes and tape and try to stuff everything in myself. And so Ship basically pretty much lived in my apartment for the last week or so, picking up stuff that I was uh, selling online or shipping to myself out here, and it's... Pretty insanely cheap for what it is, and I think it'll be exciting to see it spread outside of those couple initial cities because it's one of those things that we don't do on a daily basis, and then once you have to do it, it's a huge hassle, Um, so it's yet another on-demand service that is making life in 2015 pretty great.
0: All right, cool. Well, if people want to follow up on what you're working on or find out more about what you do, uh, where should they go?
3: Best place to start is probably on Twitter at Ben Drucker, D-R-U-C-K-E-R. And you can make your way to my website. Uh, from there, you can check out is ease at easeup.com. Uh, and I am starting to get back into doing a little bit of writing. So we're we're working on a lot of interesting things at ease. Uh, some of our applications are Angular. Some of the new stuff that we're working on actually is not angular and it's not react either so i think there'll, there'll be a lot of interesting things to talk about around sort of what these principles of of modular breaking up applications into small pieces what does that actually look like for a company that's growing really fast
0: all right cool well uh, i guess that's a show so we'll wrap it up and we'll catch y'all next week Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do You want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today.